Hello, this is a pre-pod message to say that we are doing a live show at this year's London Podcast Festival on the 18th of September, which includes a whole film screening and podcast recording with a fantastic special guest. What are we showing? Good question. We'll be screening 1991's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, 88 minutes long, a rare theatrical screening. Cowabunga! Who selected the film? Why, it was Dan Schreiber, top comedian, writer and producer. He's one of the hosts of the Ace QI podcast, No Such Thing as a Fish. Where and when is this happening? It's at the London Podcast Festival 2022 at King's Place. The film starts at midday on Sunday the 18th of September. Tickets, which include both the film screening and the podcast recording, are on sale now via the King's Place website. Read our show notes. For the link. Hello and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90-minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by journalist, podcaster, and human man, Rico Galliano. You may have heard uh, some of his pod credits before. He's a, he's a man of many, many podcasts. But Rico, you're currently the head of audio for streaming service Mubi and host of the Mubi podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you for that lovely introduction. You've been working in, in audio for, for quite some time. I guess, how did you sort of fall into podcasting? And, and, and what is it about the format that you're, uh, you're a fan of? Oh, man, ironically, that's going to make your this episode way longer than 90 minutes, the answer to that <laughs> question. Um, I, how did I fall into it? I mean, I started actually as a, a, a film guy. I went to film school. I went to film studies undergrad. I went to the American Film Institute as a screenwriter. I came out to L.A. to go to the American Film Institute from my home in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, was studying screenwriting. But I'd always kind of done journalism on the side. And after spending some time writing for television, this is the pre-platinum age that we're in now. This was at a time when actually reality TV was in its highest point of ascendance. I kind of got quickly disillusioned with writing for TV, and it seemed increasingly clear, and I think this is the case, I think I was fairly prescient in seeing that there would be far less screenwriting going on. There just aren't that many, aren't as many big movies being made. I was kind of on the side, still always doing my journalism. I had done music criticism, I'd done film criticism, and I'd always listened to public radio. And actually Los Angeles has a number of uh, very well-known public radio shows here in the States or produced out of Los Angeles. And I was like, well, maybe I'll do some of that. I like the idea that audio kind of lets me do the reporting stuff that I was kind of interested in, which like gets you out into the world meeting interesting people and doing things that you otherwise might not do. I like telling people about interesting things that are going on, but there's also kind of this performative aspect of audio. And I ended up doing work for public radio here, weirdly for a business show called Marketplace. My old partner, Brendan Francis Noonan, used to say, who I met when we were both working at Marketplace, uh, we used to say that it was ridiculous for us to be working on a business show because we didn't have any money, and yet we were talking about it all the time. What What he and I wanted to do was to talk about the arts, and while we were working on Marketplace, he and I got together 
and came up with a show called The Dinner Party Download, which basically allowed us to talk about all different arts within the structure of a fictional dinner party. And it was all just basically a way to do a magazine arts show and allow us to talk about anything that we wanted to. And nobody was going to pay us to do that. And no one was going to give us a a public radio show to do that. So we decided to do it as a a then relatively new. I'm not going to say we were right at the beginning. There were other podcasters definitely that blazed the way. Uh, Jesse Thorne with Bullseye first and foremost. But it was like pretty early in the podcast thing. And we did it as a podcast because that's the only thing that we could do. And I think it's ironic because I don't think anybody today, well, maybe some, but I don't think a lot of people today get into audio to be in radio. Now they get into audio because they want to make a podcast. Back then we were doing a podcast so that we could get on the radio. We were like, maybe somebody will listen to this thing and put us, put it on the air. And they did. It was crazy. Our, our employers, American Public Media, saw that the show gained a little bit of traction. And so they let us do it on the side. They paid us to kind of do it on the side in addition to our regular jobs and kind of brand and put it under their umbrella. And it started being on the radio and on podcast, and it got to be kind of a thing. And that's how I got into podcasting. All of that radio and podcast experience feeds into the movie podcast because it, it's such a well-produced and so well-researched show. You're taking the audience to different countries and looking at different seminal moments uh, in cinema. Yeah, was the show always going to be like that? Where did you start with um, the your nebulous idea for a, a podcast for movie? I will say in advance that the, um, the show is kind of more of an anthology. So the first season that you're speaking of, the topic is different for the second season. And we can talk about that, which I really hope we get to because I'm excited about it. But the first season was an idea that I'd always had before Mubi sort of came into my life. It actually began with music. I was in the Netherlands, my, my favorite country. And I was in Amsterdam, my favorite city. And there was just this night where I was, you know, in the hotel room watching TV like one does when you're supposed to be out touristing. And I suddenly in the middle of the night, every single channel was playing this video of this guy. And I didn't know who the guy was. And I suddenly realized that whoever this guy was, he had died. And I couldn't understand why, how he had died because it was all in Dutch. And the next day I found out that this guy was Herman Brood who was this very famous Dutch rock and roller. They called him the Dutch Elvis. Anyway, I didn't know anything about this guy, but this whole nation was in mourning for him. And it suddenly occurred to me that that's probably true in all the arts for every country, that there are these people. I mean, of course, we probably already all know this on some level, but I hadn't thought about like exploring that. There are these countries where it's like only that country gives a damn, but they really give a damn about this, you know, arts artifact or performer or something. And it was like, that seems like a great idea. And it seemed perfect for a podcast because it's music. And I had that in the back of my head. And when movie came to me, it was like, well, we could do that with movies. I'm sure there must be. And I knew of one of them because I'm a fan of the Netherlands, which is Turkish Delight by Paul Verhoeven. It's one of the biggest movies in the history of uh, the Dutch box office. And what's also great about that as a first episode is it's Paul Verhoeven. And everybody knows Paul Verhoeven, but few people know that movie. I mean, people may have heard of it or may have even seen it, but they may not be aware that this movie, which is very insane. It's like, how did that become the biggest movie 
ever in the Netherlands. There has to be a story behind that. So from there, it was just doing a ton of research and, you know, talking to people and thinking of different countries. I wanted kind of a range of countries from all over the world. So it was like, oh, well, in this continent, what's an interesting movie story? And we came up with six movies and uh, it turned out that it was true. There, It's just fascinating. And it's also a way to understand the country. If you kind of understand what made the movie a hit, it's one way of exploring the country's history and what it's, you know, thinks of itself and what its symbols are, at least at that moment in time. So it, it ends up being about a lot of stuff through movies. Movies are, you know, like a universal language, but, you know, there's different varieties out there, especially with domestic cinema, which is something which is not reported as widely as, as films made in Hollywood. So I think it's a really good way to spotlight a particular moment, but then broaden it out into film going in, in, in general. And, and then this season is kind of a similar idea. Every episode is about a different thing, but it's all about movie theaters different movie theaters that have had a huge impact, at least on film history, but also in just history, in, in a few cases, at least history in general. The, the first episode is about the Cinémathèque Française, which, you know, in addition to kind of launching the French New Wave, also, I mean, arguably, very arguably, but it's fascinatingly tied into the May 68 protests that happened in France. So it's the same kind of thing. It's like looking at one thing, a movie theater, and then figuring out why that movie theater managed to be historically important at that moment in time, like what came together to make that happen. Oh, that's incredible. I uh, am a big, big fan of going to the cinema and I, I work in cinema you know, professionally know. For, for so long now. So um, so anything that shines a spotlight on the, on the buildings themselves and the importance of them within a, a community is, uh, is 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 great. Oh my god! Exactly right. I know. I'm talking to the exact. Right. It just <laughs> occurred to me. I'm talking to the perfect person. You will like it. I guarantee. <laughs> it's made basically for you. Well, thanks for making that personally for me, Rico. Very yeah, kind. I was thinking about you as I made it. And uh, now that I'm actually watching you on the Zoom, I can think of you as I'm making. I can envision you laughing and enjoying as I edit. <laughs> When you're looking at, uh, say, the like listings at a movie theater, or you know maybe you know the last couple of years, you know things to watch at home. Do you ever look at the runtime on the back of the box? When I'm going to a theater, this ironically, I think not ironically. I mean, this I think is one of the glories of theater, and I, I mean, I I definitely think it is. Is that in a movie theater, I don't care. At home, runtime definitely matters. And I think that's one of the reasons why we absolutely need to make sure that movie theaters are still around, because I think like my best example of this is Roma, the movie Roma that came out a few years ago. I, that movie was released in a few theaters before it went on Netflix. Netflix was a producer of it, or at least a distributor of it. And anyone I know who saw it in a theater thought it was like, oh, yes, obviously that's the best picture of the year. There's, it makes total sense that that's up for an Oscar. And it was like a shattering experience. Like my wife and I were weeping watching that movie at nobody I know who watched it at home got it. And most people didn't finish it because it's very, it's there's a certain kind of movie that's super long and very leisurely paced, but also grand in its vision that I think requires a movie theater and just doesn't work at home. So yeah, I think definitely for home viewing, 90 minutes is the way to go. There was, I'm sure you were delighted when you saw the SNL sketch a few uh, months ago. 
our, our mentions on Twitter were uh, were it was going crazy. Couldn't get any of them on the show though. Who who the thunk it? <laughs> come on, Pete wouldn't come on your show. Somehow, by by hello high water, my hook or my crook, we'll get Pete Davidson on the show. He's in a new uh, A24 film called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Oh come on. This is perfect. The film is 95 minutes long, but I feel God, like it's, damn it. it's yeah, it's in the ballpark. Um, maybe I'll just talk to him about how the film is five minutes too long. <laughs> I, I can't tell you. I mean, I'm sure this has been discussed on your show before, so stop me if it has. But it's like ridiculous how many movies almost fit into your format. It's like it, it to the point where I am positive that Hollywood was kind of like, listen, if people are going to buy a ticket to see a movie in a movie theater, it's got to be at least 91 minutes. Like, let's make it. Ni- there are so many 91 and 92 goddamn movies <laughs> out there. We get a lot of people trying to sort of convince us that 92 is OK. I'm like, no. That's- I did. Remember, I wanted to do Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude is 91 freaking minutes long and we do an entire episode on it in the second season. What a perfect tie in. And way to get you to listen to my show, yet I cannot because of your stupid <laughs> restrictions. The arbitrary rule. There will be a 92 minutes or less podcast fest, but maybe one time. But uh, but uh, but no, it's 90 minutes or less. We have to be strict. We've said no to to various people, and I I, I feel bad for anyone I've said no to if I if I suddenly let uh, an, a rogue 92 minute long movie in. But Harold and Maud is yeah that that that's that sort of comes up sometimes. And His Girl Friday is 92 minutes long. That comes up a, a, a oh, really? little bit. A Clueless is in the 90 something minute category, and uh, play strange and automobiles 91 minutes all yeah. of those we will never talk about on this show apart from right now <laughs> the thing about his girl friday though is that that's a three-hour movie that's been compacted into 92 minutes because they talk real fast so that doesn't count when we started talking about this show and, and you sort of mentioned harold and mauds um how and i you know i said no rico we cannot do that how You're did really you mean. how did you um, approach your second attempt it's a good thing you weren't in the room you would have hit me in the face right in the face <laughs> a that ridiculous idea rico it'll never work you were a terrible person to me personally um how did how did i come to to pick our film today i mean, I mean it turns out that there are lists i mean i think there's a reason pete davidson definitely tapped into something in the zeitgeist and so have you that it's like yeah at home you really need a 90 minute movie so there are lists out there of 90 minute movies almost all of which have been plundered by your previous guests who i'm sure were reading the same lists. so damn you for coming to me late in the game but one that wasn't on some of those lists was just done in we're recording this in uh, in late june and i think it was just last week's or two weeks ago's episode you got uh heavy metal which was a movie i very much wanted to talk about i think it's 89 minutes it's like just barely or maybe 90 minutes exactly or something like that i was like perfect i can't believe no one's done it and then of course bob's burgers guy gets to talk about it on your show which i understand he's an animator he should talk about the animated film but still that was mean again I don't know why I submitted to this. I should have just said F off. <laughs> Lauren was someone who, who sent two suggestions over and his second one was like 95 minutes long. I was like, well, we can't talk about that. No. <laughs> no. So we sort of de facto had to default to uh, to heavy metal and uh, and then I'm sorry, it, it sort of bumped it out for uh, for you. I'm joking, of course. I totally understand. Um, but And the reason, why did I settle on Groove? I, I mean, like we came to, we were talking about it was either Groove or, and I'll throw this out there for anybody who's listening that's going to be up next on the show, uh, The Bling Ring, the Sofia Coppola movie. I ended up with Groove mainly because for me, it's quite nostalgic and I've given up apologizing for that. I just, I want to wallow in nostalgia right now. I think that we have a right to. And if you think that I'm bad because of that, then you're welcome to try a different podcast for one episode. 
On Friday, a single email blips through the internet. The word quickly spreads through the city. The party is on. Saturday evening, 200 people secretly converge at an abandoned San Francisco warehouse. As the sun sets, the records start spinning, setting into motion a night that no one will forget. David Turner and his brother Colin and Colin's girlfriend Harmony go to Groove and have a night that changes the brothers forever. You can almost hear the beats under that. And there we go. And the cover of the DVD is, I guess, maybe if you uh, Google this movie, the, the sort of most popular still is the guy uh, on a on a train with a with a like a disco ball. It's like the most '90s photo ever. He's like dressed in full kind of raver gear. I th- is he wearing sunglasses or just kind of he's cool wearing glasses? sunglasses? Yeah, he's yeah. wearing sunglasses in a BART train in San Francisco holding a giant glitter ball in his lap. Groove, it was a film that premiered at Sundance, directed by Greg Harrison, written and directed by Greg Harrison, featured debut uh, from Greg, and then got picked up by Sony Pictures. Definitely like, a, I guess, a bit of a snapshot uh, into a particular moment in time, uh, which I did enjoy as, a, as an audience member. For sure. Also, some major people in the cast. One of the stars is Hamish Linklater, who went on to be in a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, also a young Nick Offerman makes an appearance as a cop, of course. Like you can see what's funny is that he's not really uh, the comedy. He doesn't provide a ton of comedy in this. He's cast because he looks like a cop. It's not quite exploited that he's also a hilarious dude yet. So it's kind of fun watching him kind of play the straight guy interestingly it's such a minor role he's not sort of mentioned on you know a lot of the top line blurb about the movie and i was like what was was that nick that was actually nick offerman and you know what he looks identical (laughs) to how he looks right now he still has as i recall i can't remember does he still have the must does he have the mustache he has the mustache yeah it's like he never he never changes that guy was literally carved out of granite and will be that way he was born with that face and that stash he doesn't play the role for for comedy particularly, but he still makes me laugh. I think just hearing his voice yeah. and this sort of like residual <laughs> comedy from other roles um, yeah. Yeah, kind of makes me chuckle. It works. <laughs> he is really good at being... The idea, by the way, is that he's a cop that is, you know, thinking about busting this rave that is the center of the movie. And the, the major portion that he's in is him being led through the space by the guy who's throwing the rave, who's trying to pass off what is happening as not a rave at all, but just a party that his startup is having, having, which again, just like an amazing snapshot of like web 1.0 <laughs> culture. And the cop is like, mm-hmm. and it goes through like there are many scenes. It's kind of like it cuts back and it cuts to that happening for like many minutes throughout the film. And finally, in a very Nick Offerman way, he's kind of like basically says, I know exactly what's going on here. Keep the noise down or I'll be back. So he's kind of a nice cop. He's like giving him the warning of like, if this gets out of hand, I will bring down the hammer. And when he does that, it is like, that's the Nick Offerman we know. He's just like, "Mm -hmm. I'm Nick Offerman. You can't run anything by me. He can smell it a mile. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, listeners. Your host, Sam here. I wanted to say that we now have a Kofi page. If you love listening to the podcast, you can now support us for as little as £3. That's right, just £3. Your one-off donation will really help us keep doing what we're doing. Visit ko-fi.com slash 90minfilmfest. That's ko-fi.com slash 90minfilmfest. And all for the price of a posh coffee. Be more like Sean, who donated just the other day. Thanks, Sean. It was really lovely to read your message. 
But don't worry at all if you can't. You can still support the show by leaving a rating or review on your podcast listening app. Those are hugely important as they help others find the pod. Thanks, gang. Back to the show. Did you catch this film in 2000? Like, when did you first come across this film? Yeah, so I did see it in its first release. So I was uh, in, I, I moved to Los Angeles in the mid 90s. And because I was just enough of a weirdo to think that it would be a good idea, I like went to the Burning Man Festival. And it's, I wouldn't say it's very early days. I'm not like a, an original and OG, but it was like 96, which many people in the Burning Man world will tell you was like the last year it was cool. And by cool, they mean like people died. <laughs> like, I mean, people have died since, but it's been like a pure accident. This was because the, the way that the thing was set up was like the Wild West at the time. It was like a kind of dangerous environment. And your ticket said in big, bold letters, you assume the risk of serious injury or death by attending and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, less so at the time, but still a big part of Burning Man was like infused with rave culture. Now it's even more so. I feel like the techno is like really at the forefront of that. And so uh, like through that I ended up kind of I, I would not say that I'm a raver I did not dress the part but like I liked electronica enough and I definitely like just the kind of like uninhibited nature of it I always have been interested in sub subcultures and I was living in LA and there was a lot of this happening in LA in the deserts between LA and San Francisco and in San Francisco and I was dating someone who's originally from San Francisco so right at the tail end of rave culture I would say like 99 2000 I was going to San Francisco and going not to this kind of rave like a completely illegal like we found an abandoned warehouse and we're just inviting people and we're going to take it over kind of rave but I did go to these things it was called the St. John's Rhythm Society and it was like a super cool as you might imagine in San Francisco progressive church that allowed these kind of arty kids, a lot of them were like authors and filmmakers and things like that, to basically have raves, uh, you know, once a month or maybe every couple of months in this church. And, and it was very like high minded in a way there was like a little ritual that would be done before the rave began where like maybe people would sit and they'd all have candles and then one person would light a candle and then everybody would light their candles off that candle so that the glow spread through the room <laughs> and that feeling of we're all creating light together in community oh god what an optimistic time it was it was and then you know they'd play electronica all night and everybody would take ecstasy and it was like uh, it was definitely cool and uh, I also did experience one rave when I lived in Pittsburgh it turned out to be the last rave in Pittsburgh because it was thrown under dubious uh, legal standing in a tunnel that ran underneath a community they kind of lied their way to getting allowed being allowed to throw a rave in a tunnel and infamously, the cops kind of didn't show up. They were supposed to be there to like provide security, and they just didn't. So there were like 2,000 kids in this tunnel and like no supervision, and like the neighbors were going insane <laughs> because there's this loud pumping music. Anyway, so I did have this kind of tangential touch points to rave culture. And so when this movie came out, there was this, there was also a movie about techno called Better Living Through Chemistry. They came out right around the same time. Like this is when the thing that I think is interesting about this movie is that the rave culture had been going on for quite a while and had been finally going on long enough that now bigger movies were being made about it. This was still an indie movie, but, you know, it's probably like several million dollar budget. 
and they finally start coming out and that's right when like everything goes to hell groove comes out in 2000 and one year later is 9-11 and it's just like nobody's partying anymore you're seeing a document of a time that is about to end and it's makes it all that much more poignant to me because everybody's so optimistic in it the last shot of this movie which i won't get away the giveaway is like so optimistic and kind of all about community and like helping people out it, it brings a tear to the eye it's a fascinating period of time. It's not something I know like super loads about, but but there is a great episode of Edgar Wright's TV show Spaced. Not sure if you're uh, familiar with that, where the gang go to a rave. I know the show, but I haven't seen every episode. There are so many shots in Groove that remind me of that episode. And <laughs> I think that episode maybe came out in like 99 in the UK. So it's similar sort of time, similar sounding music, but some of the cinematography is near identical. And I was like wondering, like, I wonder if Harrison watched that or if Edgar right watch groove like what what's the exact you know sort yeah. of sort of thing here or if there was by the way there was another i think in britain the uh equivalent of this movie was human traffic comes out i think it's a little bit before groove but it's around the same time that's much more kind of train spottingy and like hectic and uh, in fact, it probably came out right after train spotting. My guess is that it was kind of like infused with kind of train spotting energy. So, I, but I do wonder if there's some similarity between all these things because they're all feeding off the same aesthetic baseline. And, the, and, and also, I mean, rave culture had kind of an aesthetic. It was kind of candy colored and it was kind of fast. The, you know, the music was kind of bumping and rhythmic and there's a, a cartoon quality to it as well. This movie is a lot more earnest than human traffic but i wonder if that's why it's like those if you were making if you were making something about a rave it would look somewhat like other things about raves yeah, absolutely i guess it's, it's it's also quite a cinematic um like location uh for people you know obviously very heavily lighting designed and lots of bodies on screen is is also cinematic and and the, the soundtrack of you know sort of adds value uh to that so i can sort of see why filmmakers were intrigued you know not just wanting to capture the the cultural moment but also this is going to be a fun film to make i i would imagine oh for sure for sure and it's also just like the the slightly illicit quality of it it's like peace and love but you're also breaking the law like the the big uh, you know phrase that's even mentioned in groove is a plur the acronym plur p-l-u-r peace love unity respect which i'd been hearing for years before they brought it up in that movie that's the underlying ethos but to to like gather together and express that ethos you have to break the law like that's kind of like simultaneously progressive and a little uh, subversive and that's something I think that is interesting to filmmakers. It's also, by the way, another rave movie that's more recent is Beats. It's it's really good, but it's totally different. It's like this movie made by Mike Lee. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or by, it's like, it's more like Ken Loach. It's like a gritty kind of working class take on a kind of Northern England rave scene. And it's fantastic, but it's like the completely opposite vibe. It's just like, and that movie is very aware that it's all coming to an end. It's like, this is a temporary respite from the otherwise grimness of the world, basically. It's crazy looking back how optimistic a time that was really not that long ago. I mean, it's a long time ago. Actually, it's two decades ago. Forget it. But like, it is the optimism. I, mean, I was reporting at the time, like for the Los Angeles Weekly, every now and then, like as a freelancer, not a ton, but I was writing sometimes about kind of rave adjacent culture i remember writing a lot of people were writing about ecstasy this is how great a time it was like the biggest problem 
confronting America was that like kids are taking ecstasy. There was, I remember Time Magazine doing a cover story on it. Everyone was just like, all the kids are taking ecstasy. What's it doing to their minds? They'll have no serotonin left. So I was doing articles about that. And one thing that seemed to be permeating the culture was all of this talk about amongst ravers in in the Burning Man community. People would go to like Burning Man and they'd be like, how can we do this all the time? How can we make this basically society like Burning Man? For those who haven't been there, in addition to being a big party, it's also kind of like a mini city, like the city springs up in the middle of the desert for a while. And it has like kind of a lot of the qualities of a city as if it were made by crazy people and artists. And a lot of people were like, how do we do this full time? And remember, this is in the late 90s. There are all these startups and like all these young people are suddenly millionaires And they're like, yeah, I'll put like $500,000 into helping you figure out maybe how we could have a community, like a kind of constant community like this that's based on these same values. I I mean, I did an article about this ecstasy group. This It was a harm reduction group called Dance Safe that would go into clubs and test your ecstasy to make sure that wasn't adulterated. And they were getting funded by like tech bros who weren't tech at the time. I don't even know if you could call them tech bros. Like they were, I think more enlightened type who were just like, yeah, I'll give money to that because I do think that like harm reduction is better than, you know, making drugs illegal. And I had this feeling covering all this stuff that it was like, yeah, like where the hippie era failed was that those guys were protesting, but they like the whole point of that in a way was not to have a job and not to have money and live on the land. And it was like, these guys have tons of money. Like they can't be denied. America is based on having tons of money. And these guys with tons of money want things to become like Burning Man. Like maybe we can pull this off. That was a kind of like, maybe not, but maybe, maybe that could happen. And uh, turns out it, it cannot or it did not. Maybe it can. Keep trying, folks. Voicemail. Change the message. Dig we just walked in with a fresh crate of vinyl. They'll be emailing about this one for years. I hate to interfere with your reality right now, but we were busted. You gonna let a little thing like that stop us? I wouldn't call getting the power locked out and getting our decks jacked by the cops a little thing. I mean, everybody's gone. How about showing a little fame? How about huh? opening your eyes? It's over. Guy, if there's one thing you learned tonight, I hope it's this. This shit ain't over until the last record spins. <laughs> I thought the film was an interesting snapshot of that sort of thing, but it's, it's all played in a quite a naturalistic sort of way. It kind of reminded me of, I don't know, like a Richard Linklater sort of thing, you know, like when you're like, you're really in something for a short period of time. And, you know, these are all you know well fleshed out people. You see their, sort of, you know, their, their quote unquote normal life before they go to the rave and, and, and what's troubling them and, and, and things. And I, I did sort of like that. I guess it's very Sundance, you know, like it's a proper indie movie uh, vibe and, it's. It feels like people are just sort of floating through the film at, at their own pace, uh, which which made it quite watchable for me. Yeah, you think the opening sequence is very kind of high, like fast cutting, kind of video style thing. Lots of different characters getting ready for the rave. I love that sequence, by the way, because it's showing people contacting each other on the internet as though it's like this super high tech thing, but they're all on like monochrome screens with yeah. like Chicago font because <laughs> it's 1999 when they're shooting this. But anyway, but then it gives way, you're right, into this very Linklater-esque, it's like a bunch of characters kind of casually intersecting in various ways, you know, maybe falling in love or not, maybe falling out of love or not, maybe just hanging out. Yeah, that's definitely true. It was a bit sad to see the director, Greg Harrison, it's not really, he did one other movie, it looks like, and then hasn't done 
anything since. He'd followed us up with a film with Courtney Cox, which also played at Sundance. Also under 90 minutes long. I mean, I love this guy in terms of his <laughs> approach to filmmaking. His second film is only 73 minutes long. Yeah, I haven't seen that second movie. I, I read up on him a little too and saw that as well. It apparently is well known. It was widely respected for its cinematography, which I wonder what is so unique about it. It seems like I didn't watch it, but uh, it did not get good reviews. Like fewer reviews than um, Groove as well. So not... Uh, uh, not sure what, what he's up to. Groove, it has that sort of original DVD release, but I don't think it's sort of been put out onto Blu-ray or, or sort of been re-released or, or, or anything since. So I'm not sure w- what the nostalgia is, is for this film, but it is readily available on streaming services. So it is, it's not like you know Sony have locked it away or anything. No, if you go on uh, uh, YouTube, especially because the soundtrack has a lot of like big electronica players from the time, like uh, the DJ Digweed, actually appears he's like mentioned throughout the film and then has like kind of a star appearance at the very end that like changes one guy's life basically and because of that i do think that in the electronica world this thing is known and there are scenes from it on youtube that have you know hundreds of thousands of hits and basically the comment section is just people going like best time ever nothing will ever compare to this time and it's very poignant and lovely seeing people it's like wonderful friends this brings up so many wonderful memories and it's like oh it's really nice digweed by the way that's my main memory i i was only kind of into electronica but my main memory of digweed is that the original itunes when itunes first was like installed on computers that you would get laptops uh, there were like 10 songs that came pre-installed on it that you just you would open up the program and they'd be there and one of them was a digweed tune sasha and digweed and I, that's one of the few songs by him i know that and the song in groove whatever that's called well, that sort of plays in with the, the tech bro narrative uh yeah <laughs> of the, i you know macbooks preloaded with digweed it was a moment it's, it's not as controversial as when apple forced a u2 album onto everybody yeah uh, right <laughs> i was just thinking that as i was saying it like nobody cared back then We've just become a much more unhappy culture. It's like, how dare you give me an album? I'll decide. It's like, I'll never fully get it. Like right now, basically like privacy rights and stuff like that are being eroded at a like rapid pace. But everyone was super pissed off that someone dared to like give them a free U2 album. Anyway. Do you have a sort of a favorite scene in the film or or something which, you know, I guess has really stuck with you since since watching this? There are many subplots in this movie. And one of them is uh, a gay couple who have decided they're going to go to this ray for their anniversary. And by the way, that that could be, they're kind of a bickering gay couple. It could be like pulled off in this like very cliched way. But it's somehow, I think it's the performances. They're like pretty understated. And they like, and they really like each other as much as they're kind of like, you know, snarking at each other. You can tell that they really want to be happy and they want to have a good time. They're going to find a way to have a good time. But anyway, there's this one scene where they're, they're trying to find the rave. I don't know why this sticks out of my mind. It's not like that big a deal, but they're, they're, they spend a lot of time trying to find the rave and they go to the place, the map point where they're supposed to pick up the final set of directions. And we, it's been set up earlier that the map, that the directions are wrong there's a wrong turn in the directions. And because they've been driving around so late, there's no one there to tell them that. They've been driving around so much trying to find the place that there's no one there to tell them that the map is wrong. So they have been they've been very upset because they haven't been able to find the place, but now they found the directions. And there's just a moment where one of them says, "Do you see this?" They, he holds up the piece of paper and the other guy sees the piece of paper 
And instead of having any dialogue, the other guy just suddenly starts making the bass sound and like dancing in place like, yeah, we're going to get to go to the rave. I like that little moment. Like it's a really nice little moment between them. And it's, but it's also very good screenwriting because we know that that happiness is about to end because that map is wrong. And what will that lead them to? It's like, that's a cool moment. I can tell you my least favorite thing in it is the bizarre subplot where like one character is proposed to another character out of nowhere. Nobody expected it. They've only been dating for a little while. Everything about them is it's very dramatic what happens to them throughout the movie. And it feels like it doesn't belong in the movie. And it's, it almost feels like it's been put in there to give it some weight that it doesn't fully explore or make much sense in. I think with um, this type of film with like this sort of sprawling ensemble cast, there are sort of, you know, highs and lows in terms of some of the narrative. And I feel like that, that scene you mentioned, the proposal just actually feels like this is, is by someone who is, you know, a less experienced filmmaker and they haven't quite judged the pacing or the tone of the film. And, and it, that, that sort of stuck out to me also. And it kind of goes from like goofy, there's a couple of really goofy characters, like the science teacher or the lab assistant kind of guy who's talking about how drugs work. <laughs> Um, which, which doesn't I don't think it sort of fits in with the tone of the, the rest of the film yeah it's interesting like it needs to but it's uh, to be fair it's a hard tone that they're going for to sustain which is kind of like genial yet engrossing like that's a really hard tone to pull off any movie that does it is like that's a good filmmaker to be able to just, it just like pleasant and yet it's not boring it's not always easy to get so you can understand it's like well i better inject some drama in here like to pique people's interest and i don't think the guy trusted himself maybe because it actually a lot of the lower key stuff is plenty enjoyable it's fine man relaxed mr harrison yeah he's still a, i think when when he kind of lets things you know follow their own course like there's a there's some good stuff there and he is really good at you know the crowd scenes and the, the like larger um you know sort of dialogue scenes with multiple characters interacting but yeah lots of good stuff in there but i think you know this is this is why it's a it's a great you know indie movie I, I, it's taking some risks and it's i think it's really interesting as an audience member if not everything works I, i'd rather have that than okay i'm on a conveyor belt and i know exactly you know in 24 minutes in we're gonna have this and then this is gonna happen and this is gonna happen yeah right there's also there's a, a kind of of its era tone of like people that are trying to figure out their lives and have been trying for a while that feels very 90s slacker. It's like I feel like today it's very like you get out of college and it's like you better hit the ground running and like figure out what you're doing with your life because it's doggy dog out there and you better make some money quick. And it's like you there's a character in this movie, the um, Hamish Linklater's love interest in this movie who she's basically been kicking around Europe for a while and she's thinking about going to school and she's a little worried about the fact that she's like, you know, a little older, maybe in her late twenties or early thirties or something and hasn't gone to probably late twenties <laughs> and hasn't gone to school yet. That feels very much of its time. And it feels, it's so relaxing to, <laughs> to watch it. It's like, oh, I'd like to feel that relaxed again. It was a discovery for me, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, you picked it and, and added it to our fictional film festival, Rico. I'm glad. It could be... Where would you place it in the film festival if it was over several weeks? I think, yeah, the, the, ironically, our, our film festival, which celebrates short films, is now sprawling into yeah, uh, like a month-long affair. But 
um we've got a couple of other music films which are different types of music but this is spinal tap um we've got mm. searching for sugar man i sort of feel like there might be like a like a like literally like a festival tent or something where we we use that space you know to celebrate music in cinema and uh and yeah maybe this would be like the like one of the late night film screenings there i thought like that might might suit the uh the the vibe yeah that's right you should program this with all of the other rave movies and make it an all-nighter. That's a great idea. Actually, that has anybody done that? An all-night, like basically a rave that's all rave movies. It's a rave of rave movies. That would be doing I have, but I feel like we should capitalize on this uh, right now. Somebody listening to this is about to make a lot of money and it's not going to be us. Why isn't it us? Why is it never us? It's because we put our ideas out on a podcast for free, damn it. Not, not great businessmen, but very into movies. So as, as part of your commitment as a guest curator at our film festival, how, how would you like to you know, present this film to an audience if you could maybe dress the venue or, or pick a specific location that might suit the film? I mean, like this one's pretty obvious. Like you should, you know, it should be a rave. Like you should find a place harder to find, I think nowadays, but like find some derelict place and just like these guys, like jack into the electric lines. And, you know, I, I guess... I still, I'm, I'm a big fan of film and this was probably shot on film. It's, it's not late enough for it not to have been. Maybe it wasn't, but possibly it was. And I don't know if you can set up a projector in such a space easily. It'd be a lot easier to set up a, you know, a digital projector. But uh, yeah, I would love to see that in a warehouse somewhere. I don't know. What's the equivalent of San Francisco in the 90s now? Like what's the city that is like, flowering but still affordable for young people who maybe don't have the biggest jobs yet like the main character in this movie writes copy for like instruction booklets he could never afford to live in san francisco anymore i feel like in the uk it would be sort of somewhere in the north like manchester or liverpool smaller than london less expensive than london manchester would make a ton of sense i mean like that's one of the ground zeros for rave culture of an earlier stripe Let's do it there. What's a, what is the old um, factory records? Uh, what was the name of the factory records nightclub? The, uh, the Hacienda. Is that still around? Can we do it in the Hacienda? Probably been turned into like a really gentrified, um, overly expensive bar or something. But let's do it. Let's, let's, let's de-shine the Hacienda. Take it back to the 90s. What we'll do is we'll tell everybody in that building that there's a rave. They'll go to that. Meanwhile, we will go in, show our film and get out before they even know what happened. I think that, that, sounds, that sounds awesome. I feel like we have to invite people to the screening by email and email only and like really <laughs> basic right. email. No, no HTML or graphics, like just uh, old school. Oh, no, or even better, like you have to be, you have to join a list serve. That's the only way. And just see who, see who comes, see who gets forwarded on and, and all that sort of stuff. I love it. The other way to do it would be, I mean, like in Britain, I remember a lot of the early raves, I think, were, you know, where they were playing like the stone roses and stuff, weren't those like out in the forest? This movie isn't really, it's very urban, so I'm not sure it works in the forest. But just if we're doing it in the UK, maybe we could do that as a throwback to your rave culture. I still think the Hacienda is where it's at. I think, yeah, let's, let's, let's start at a Hacienda and, uh, and and take it from there. I think we've got some backup options in case in case that felt, that falls through. Perf. Also, it rains a lot where you are. <laughs> yeah, outdoor cinema can be, uh, can be quite, quite risky. If you had to sort of you know curate a menu or, or offer the audience some drinks or snacks, you know what would you what would you like to serve alongside Groove? Uh, you gotta have bottled water. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, 
does anybody eat anything in Groove? I feel like at some point somebody like eats an orange and they're like, oh my God, this is so good or something because they're high. Maybe orange. But it's like, that's the thing. It's like from my rave days, you just go and go and go. And then the next morning you have breakfast. So maybe uh, it's not so much food during the screening, but afterwards we all go out to some sort of communal diner. That sounds great. Okay. Well, there we go. We got a, that sounds like it'll be a cool screening. Thank you very much for uh, for bringing Groove to our festival and, and and putting on this fictional screening with us. I think it'll be a lot of fun and also like genuinely like you know this isn't a particularly you know well known film but it is readily available so so we'll uh, you know we'll, the links to watch it in the in the show notes everyone hopefully some people will will go and have discovered the film uh, because of this episode. Yes, it's very enjoyable. It's it's earnest. It has its heart in the right place. Anything that's wrong with it, I think you can forgive it and. Less than 90 minutes. What have you got to lose? Thanks so much for, for joining us. And uh, and I'm really, really looking forward to the new season of the movie podcast. Of course, the, the joy of uh, you know podcasts is people might be listening to this when you're on season five, six, 25. Who knows? Well, let's um, hope. But season two sounds awesome. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Thank you. And yes, please listen. And by the time you hear this, it should be at least a few episodes should be out. Six episode season links in the show notes but you know wherever you're listening to this you know how podcasts work listeners type in movie podcast you'll you'll see season one you'll see season two and maybe maybe any future seasons that come too we should say that we've got some shared dna with that show as well martin ostwick who provides our lovely uh, lovely music you can hear some of his some of his tunes on the on the movie podcast yes he did an amazing job amazing music uh, and this season he did some more like we had a bunch of stuff from last season and then i got to add some more this season so it's a good thing listen for him and if people want to see what you're up to um where should they head on on social media rico i very stupidly gave all my social media my name rico galliano that's my handle and that's a very hard name to spell i don't know what i was thinking it's r-i-c-o-g-a-g-l-i-a-n-o there's a silent g in it rico gagliano is how it's spelled and i'm on instagram and twitter thanks so much rico thank you sir this was really a lot of fun and i hope people enjoy Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 